If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Philosophy for Our Times, a podcast brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas. Have you ever wondered if the sun might be conscious? Rupert Sheldrake has, and his answer might surprise you. Could it be that our universe has thoughts and can make decisions just like us? Is the sun conscious? As everyone will know, this is the kind of question you're not supposed to ask. Just asking that question is enough to condemn you as being superstitious, animistic, childlike, naive. It's not a question you're meant to ask within educated circles. One reason for this very strong taboo is the fact that the vast majority of humanity have taken it for granted that the sun's conscious throughout practically all of human history. In many cultures, the sun is a god or a goddess. There's no fixed gender. In Japan, it's a goddess. It's a very key part of Japanese mythology. In Northern Europe, the sun was a goddess. In Southern Europe, in the mythologies, the sun was a god. I I think that the mythological background is that in almost all cultures, it's taken for granted the sun is a living being, a god, which is conscious. And children take it for granted too, which is why they draw the sun with a smiley face. And indeed, our ancestors in Europe took it for granted right up until the 17th century. In the Middle Ages, the worldview that was taught in the universities and in the monasteries uh, was one of Christian animism. They took it for granted nature was alive, the earth was alive, Mother Earth. When they looked up at the sky, not only was the sun alive, but all the stars and the planets, which we still name after the gods and goddesses of the ancient world, Venus, Mercury, and so on. In the 17th century, um, with the growth of mechanistic science, um, the new idea came in, which has been the foundation of science ever since, that matter is inanimate and unconscious, that that the universe is made up of inanimate, unconscious matter and works like a machine. It's just machinery. It's called the mechanistic or mechanical worldview. And the current orthodoxy of science is mechanistic materialism. Uh, which is the doctrine that everything's made of matter and everything's basically unconscious matter governed by mathematical laws. The problem with mechanistic materialism, the orthodoxy of our universities today, is that it excludes consciousness from the entire worldview. That leaves the terribly embarrassing problem of the fact that we're conscious. We ought not to be uh, if matter's totally unconscious and brains are made of matter. So the very existence of consciousness is called in the trade of philosophy of mind, the hard problem. 
Most of them are materialists, and most of them try to deal with it, either by saying that consciousness doesn't really exist, that uh, it's only an illusion. But the trouble is that doesn't really work because illusion is itself a mode of consciousness. Or they say it's just another way of thinking about physico-chemical processes in the brain, and soon this folk psychology of subjectivism will give way to the hard objective language of neuroscience. Anyway, it's an embarrassment. They try to get rid of consciousness uh, from the brain, because otherwise it gets in the way of this materialist worldview. But because the hard problem is so hard, there have recently been uh, a number of materialist philosophers who've been jumping ship. One of the first to do so was Galen Strawson, about 10 years ago, who wrote an article called Does Materialism Imply Panpsychism? To which he answered yes. Panpsychism is the doctrine that there's mind or consciousness or mentality in all self-organizing things, including electrons and atoms. And he thought we could only account for the emergence of consciousness in human minds if there's something, a kind of proto-consciousness already there within the material world. In other words, matter isn't just brute, unconscious stuff. Uh, there's a, a potential, a kind of mentality, even within electrons. Now, that's a big stretch for most materialists, and it was a big break, uh, and it sort of upset a lot of people. What upset them even more was a couple of years ago, one of America's top philosophers of mind, Thomas Nagel, joined this bandwagon and wrote a book called Mind and Cosmos, why the materialist neo-Darwinian conception of nature is almost certainly false. And this caused a furore in, in academic circles, particularly in the United States. Uh, they accused him of going soft, or, you know, senile decay and that kind of thing. But Nagel, has, his book is very clearly argued. I mean, it ends more or less where I'd like it to begin. But he clearly shows that the current conception won't work. But of course, there's nothing new in the idea of panpsychism, of mind and nature. It was what the medieval philosophers like Thomas Aquinas put forward. It's what Aristotle put forward in the ancient world. It's um, a philosophy that's implicit in almost all traditional societies, hunter-gatherer societies, and so on. We've been educated to think, look down on it, animism, as if this is just this childish, superstitious way of thinking about things. But soon after Descartes came up with his famous matter-spirit split in the 17th century, two of the greatest philosophers of the 17th century came up with early versions of panpsychism. Leibniz put forward the idea the universe is made up of self-organizing wholes, which he called monads, including atoms and including animals and people. And each monad has a body, but it also has a mind. And each monad reflects the entire universe from its own point of view. So the universe is a network of centers of consciousness, all reflecting the universe from their own point of view. Spinoza, the Dutch Jewish philosopher, argued that, the, that God is the mind of nature and nature is the body of God. And this was a kind of pantheist version of panpsychism. The most interesting panpsychist philosopher of all, in my opinion, in recent times was Alfred North Whitehead, a British philosopher who ended up teaching at Harvard, who had a philosophy of nature that said we should think of nature as an organism, not a machine. And he was the first philosopher to appreciate the radical implications of quantum theory. And he pointed out that quantum theory had showed that matter was not stuff. Until then, people thought matter was stuff. Atoms were like little billiard balls pushed around by external forces. 
quantum theory shows that electrons and protons and atoms are waves. Now, if you think about it, a wave is a process in time. You can't have a wave at an instant. It takes time to wave. And it also takes space to wave in. So it's impossible to have a wave that's localized at an instant and at a point of time and space. This is ultimately the reason for the uncertainty principle in quantum mechanics. Things are spread out, so you can't exactly localize them or pinpoint where they are or when they are. Now, if an electron and all quantum processes, and that means all matter, is essentially wave-like, then since waves are processes in time, everything has a time within it, a past and a future. A wave takes time, so it has a past pole and a future pole. And that's true of us as well, of course. We have a past and a future pole. And what Whitehead argued was that the mental pole of things is the future pole and the physical pole is the past pole. So an electron, as described by the Schrodinger wave equation of quantum mechanics, this equation describes all the possible things the electron could do. Its future is a realm of possibilities. Now, as soon as it interacts with something, all those possibilities collapse down to one definite act or interaction in a particular place. This is sometimes called the collapse of the wave function. The possibilities collapse down and you have an observable fact, but it's immediately in the past. And immediately a new wave of possibilities open up, which are in the future. And he argued that the mental pole is the future pole and the physical pole, the past pole. The relation of mind and body is not a relationship in space, which is the usual metaphor we have, the inner life, the outer world. We usually think of it in spatial metaphors. Whitehead pointed out we could solve the so-called mind-body problem, how they interact, by recognizing this as an interaction in time. And when you apply it to us, it means our minds are the realm of possibility. Possibilities are not physical facts. They haven't happened yet. But our minds realms of possibility which coexist within our conscious minds and the function of consciousness is to choose among possibilities as soon as we make a choice then it becomes a physical observable fact so i think this is a really good approach to the mind-body problem now let me come to the sun this is a general background about mind in nature and most discussions by galen strawson and thomas nagel and people are about electrons uh, what they make it clear is we're talking about self-organizing systems. Anything that organizes itself would have this kind of mind-like aspect with a future, the future possibilities. And self-organizing systems include electrons, atoms, molecules, crystals, cells, plants, animals, societies of animals like flocks of starlings, ecosystems, planets, solar systems, uh, stars, galaxies. They do not include machines, chairs, tables, pens, pencils. Those are not self-organizing. They're made by people in factories to human designs. They don't create themselves. Very often when people talk about panpsychism, then these sort of materialist philosophers, what, you mean a chair's conscious, ha ha. That's not what panpsychism is saying. It's saying self-organizing systems. Now, stars are certainly self-organizing. So are planets. And most people are familiar with the idea that Earth maybe alive from the Gaia hypothesis, which, as it were, reinvents the idea of Mother Earth, which all traditional societies have taken for granted. But it's now a scientific hypothesis that's taken fairly seriously in the world of science. But if we then apply this to the sun, we get the idea, well, maybe the sun's conscious. Why not? 
it's a self-organizing system. This whole philosophy would lead us to expect the sun to be conscious. And if the sun's conscious, then why not all the other stars? Maybe they're all conscious. To make choices, to be conscious, the general principle of consciousness would be it would have to have alternative possibilities among which it could choose. Now, I don't think it can choose its orbit. I think the sun's the gravitational orbit of the sun isn't something it's going to choose. It's not going to stop and say, oh, maybe I'll go in a different direction. That's not where its freedom and its choice might be exercised. But the sun, as we now know, is an extremely active electromagnetic system. It has a complex electromagnetic field. Every 11 years, its magnetic polarity reverses. The magnetic north pole of the sun flips to the south pole. And this is correlated with 11-year sunspot cycles. It also has flares on the surface, huge flares of energy come out. And when they're pointed towards the Earth, they can cause outages of power systems, they affect radio communications. And when there's more of the flares coming this way, the solar wind is stronger, and we get stronger northern lights and southern light, and also more lightning storms, uh, which are now known to be affected by the charged particles coming to the Earth from the sun. So the sun can affect the Earth, and sometimes it has massive events called coronal mass ejections, which send out far more matter and energy than flares. And if one ever comes this way, it would cause our whole power system to melt down. Our transmission lines with pylons would act as perfect receivers for this, and it would cause the transformers to melt, and it would take months to make enough transformers to replace the power grid. So uh, if the sun decided to take out human civilization for a matter of months and possibly cause irreparable damage to our modern way of life, it could do so almost any time it chose. So uh, the sun can do things and it can make choices. The normal assumption is these are just random. Now, how could the sun's mind interact with this? Well. Generally speaking, in science, it's taken for granted that our minds interact with our brains through the electromagnetic fields of the electromagnetic activity of the nerves in the brain. The sun has very complex, more complex electromagnetic fields in our brains. And I think that would be the most obvious interface for the interaction of the mind of the sun with its physical activity. Now, if we assume the sun is conscious, we then have several further questions. And... One of them would be, well, how does it know what's going on? Because to be conscious, we have senses. What are the sun's senses? How would it detect what's going on here on Earth? Well, I think one way of thinking about that is through the electromagnetic field. The entire solar system is embedded within the electromagnetic field of the sun. Beyond the outer planets, beyond the asteroid belt, there's a kind of magnetic envelope called the heliopause which is like a membrane around the entire solar system. And within that, the electromagnetic field of the sun is the predominant influence. Everything that's happening here in this room and everything on Earth is within the sun's electromagnetic field. Every change in your brain, all the light coming from these bulbs, everything in an electrical machine, uh, everything in the Earth and in plants and animals is within that electromagnetic field. What if the sun could directly detect what's happening through its electromagnetic field. It would be kind of omniscient throughout the solar system. I got this idea from thinking about one of Isaac Newton's more interesting thoughts. Isaac Newton was a much more interesting thinker than we're usually led to believe. He's usually seen as 
the pioneer of mechanistic science. He was, in fact, an alchemist and a rather interesting theologian. When Newton was thinking about how gravitation works, he couldn't explain how matter could attract other matter at a distance. He had a mathematical law describing the magnitude of the effect, but he didn't know what underlay it, and he didn't think matter could possibly work through a vacuum. But something else must underlay it. We now call it the gravitational field. But he thought it might depend directly on God's action. And how would God know where everything was and where it ought to be falling or moving? The answer is that he thought that space, absolute space, was the sense organ of God. God would therefore know where everything was, what it was doing and how it was moving, because space was God's sense organ. I think if the gravitational field is God's sense organ and if the electromagnetic fields are the sense organs of the planets and the stars, we have a way of thinking about the senses of the sun. Uh, which is in keeping with this very interesting thought of Newton's. Now, of course, I can't prove that, but in physics, they postulate multiple universes, none of which have been observed, dark matter and dark energy, which make up 96% of reality for which there's no independent evidence. So in that spirit, I don't have to prove everything I'm saying straight away. Um, all right, say it can sense what's happening throughout the solar system. It can make decisions. Its main influences will be through coronal mass ejections and solar flares. What does the sun think about? The, the two main things the sun might think about. Uh, first of all, its body, which is the, the sun itself, and the whole solar system, which is its extended body. It's like the heart of the entire solar system. It could know what's going on throughout the solar system, and it could modulate what happens in it through its activity. And the second thing it might think about is its peer group, the other stars. And stars maybe communicate with each other as cells within a body communicate. They're cell, like cells within the, the galaxy, which is the larger unit. And if they're like cells within a larger organism, the galaxy, then would the galaxy have a mind as well? Well, yes, why not? No, we don't know much about the thoughts of galactic minds. It's not something one sees discussed very much. And uh, in traditional philosophies, people didn't know about galaxies. They weren't discovered till the 20th century. People only knew about stars in our own galaxy. This is a, a subject that I think is actually quite an interesting one. And I co-wrote a book with the theologian Matthew Fox called The Physics of Angels, in which we looked at traditional medieval doctrines about angels from Hildegard of Bingen, the great German medieval abbess, uh, from Dionysius the Areopagite, a 6th century Neoplatonic uh, philosopher, who was probably a Syrian monk, and St. Thomas Aquinas. Um, uh, all of them wrote extensively about angels, and for most of them, the angels weren't just guardian angels that show up to help people when they've had punctures and, and, and help them out in difficult situations or whisper in their ears with good, uplifting moral thoughts. Most angels are concerned with the regulation of the cosmos, and the whole hierarchies of angels are concerned with the regulation of the stars and the heavens as conscious beings. So the idea that there's a whole realm of conscious beings beyond the human realm, and yet uh, not as all-encompassingly conscious as God, is a completely traditional idea in Western thought in Islam as well, and in Judaism, and of course in the Hindu cosmology, where they have devas who play much the same role as angels. So um, the idea of consciousness is out there beyond ours is just how everyone thought until the scientific revolution. When they looked at the sky, the sky was the abode of God. God was in the sky. God was omnipresent. And if God's omnipresent everywhere, 
then the vast majority of everywhere is in the sky rather than on the earth. So there must be 99.99999 recurring percent of God in the sky. It's normally regarded as exceedingly naive to think that God's in the sky. I don't think so at all. I think God's everywhere. The sky is full of God. And that these heavenly bodies are not just heavenly bodies, but heavenly minds. So this thinking about the sun as conscious helps us to regain a sense of living nature and of our part within a much larger conscious world. Now, the assumption that the sun is unconscious, which most of my scientific colleagues take for granted, without a moment's thought, they can't prove that either. It's an open question. And if we have a materialist worldview that just says, by definition, all matter's unconscious, although consciousness may appear in human brains and maybe the brains of dogs and a few other animal species, uh, that's the hard problem. Uh, that's just a worldview. It's a belief system. It's a faith. And people who have this faith are usually atheists, and militant atheists are usually very, very committed to this faith and very resistant to ideas that challenge it. But you don't have to be a materialist to be an atheist. Galen Strawson, who's a panpsychist, is an atheist, and so is Thomas Nagel. There is an interesting movement now of uh, panpsychist atheists, and I think that their position, when thought through, will turn into a kind of pantheism. I myself have a worldview which, I, which is called panentheism. God is in nature and nature is in God. But you can have an idea that God is nature or nature is conscious or the universe is a living being. That would be pantheism. But it's possible to think about the sun being conscious without having to commit to a theistic view of nature or a pantheist view of nature. Uh, I think it's potentially a question that lies within the realm of science. And when we think about consciousness beyond the human level in nature, uh, we begin to arrive at a very different kind of world. And when you look at the sun, it's possible to think of interacting with the sun. It's not just something out there that is raining down uh, radiation on the earth and affecting the climate and so on through sunspot cycles. The sun, uh, if it's a living being, is something we might be able to interact with. And Hindus do this normally. I spent seven years living in India. And as some of you who do yoga will know, a very common Hindu practice is the sun prostration, Surya Namaskar. I've done it every morning for more than 40 years. They face the sun and they do this yoga exercise, which is a prostration to the sun. It's a way of greeting the sun in the morning. Probably the most common, or one of the most common of all Hindu mantras, the Gayatri mantra, is an invocation of the sun, uh, the divine power and splendor of the sun uh, to aid and illuminate our meditation. So my answer to the question, is the sun conscious, is probably yes. At sunrise and sunset, which is when Hindus do these solar practices typically, you can look at the sun, and in the daytime you can look at it through leaves and the trees, where, where you're not getting the full blast of the sun's power. And just try thanking the sun for what it's giving us, relating to the sun, and thinking of the sun as something which can interact with you and might even be able to know about your thoughts and what's in your mind. Um, <coughs> And that way, it will help to build up a relationship and help re-establish a relationship with the living world in which we live. We hope you enjoyed this podcast, which was brought to you by the Institute of Arts and Ideas. So, do you think the sun might be conscious? 
let us know by tweeting at iai underscore tv with the hashtag philosophy for our times. <laughs>